0: Thank you, everybody. Uh, it's so good to be here with you. I, I get to open the Bible today, and, and, and I take that very seriously. So anytime, anytime you get to open the Bible, you want to ask at least two questions. One, what happened? And two, and more importantly, what's happening in me right now because of what happened? And so if you will talk like following actual Bible, Genesis chapter 1, it's a really easy one to find. It's right there at the beginning, and we're going to get to that in a second. What I've been doing all morning is... I chose to come here today specifically and intentionally, not as a guest, but as a family member, as a part of the team, and I wanted to speak into the culture that New Hope was intentionally trying to build. And and what we've talked about so far is that we are endeavoring to intentionally be a well-based church, not a fence-based church, that as a Christ-centered community of believers in 2020— Fully devoted followers of Jesus were called and challenged by Jesus to move away from a fence-based paradigm to a well-based paradigm. Now, here's what I mean by that, right? Jesus, Jesus was when Jesus was on the earth, it was the most fence-based ministry in the history of the world. There were 613 fences. Who's in? Who's out? Who's right? Who's wrong? Who's clean? Who's unclean? Who's worthy? Who's not worthy? Six. 113 fences in the Old Testament. Jesus transitioned the whole thing to two fence posts. Love God and treat others as you would wanna be treated. And he called his followers to be people who don't endeavor to be right about specific scriptures, but rather endeavor to fulfill the whole lot of scripture by doing unto others as you would have them do unto you. And there was this incredible encounter with a guy named Philip and an Ethiopian eunuch. And the Ethiopian eunuch, once in on what God is up to. And he asked an incredible question. Can I be in on what's up to? Is there something stopping that? And the truth of it is, is that there was something stopping that. In Deuteronomy 23, it says, no eunuch will be welcomed by God. That's a pretty good fence, right? No eunuch will ever be welcomed by God. That's a high fence with some barbed wire because nobody chooses to be a eunuch. In other words, regardless of the choices you made in life, God's not gonna accept you because something awful happened to you. But then later, a guy named Isaiah said, actually, if eunuchs want in on what God's doing, they're more than welcome. And then Jesus said in Matthew 19, you know what? Actually, some people were made eunuchs by God. And then by Acts chapter eight, this, this Ethiopian eunuch's like, I'm a foreigner and I'm a eunuch, but can I be in on this Jesus thing? And Philip made a profound choice. And that choice is is to be someone who fulfills scripture by treating him how he would want to be treated instead of someone who has to be right about every single specific verse like Deuteronomy 23 verse one. And that's what we're called to. We are called to be people who fulfill scripture instead of being right about it. We're called to be obsessed with, our people thirsty instead of, are they worthy? We are called to be people who love more instead of sin less, right? Like nothing nothing will exhaust the leadership of a church like engaging in a leadership model of sin management, right? Because in that sense, then everybody has to bring their stuff to us and we're meant to fix their stuff instead of, no, we're gonna create a culture where nothing has to be hidden. And then we're gonna trust God to do all the convicting, and all the changing because a well-based ministry focuses on loving more. A fence-based ministry focuses on sinning less. A well-based ministry focuses on nothing has to be hidden. A fence-based ministry says, I got to get in there and fix everything. A fence-based ministry says, you know what? We're worried about, are you worthy? A well-based ministry only concerns itself with, are you thirsty? Do you want it? Are you willing to let us facilitate and celebrate your next yes with God? And we can trust that because we're going to focus on the direction of your your shoulders instead of the distance you are from the center. And we're going to celebrate that next yes, which requires us at times, which brings me to this third thought. It requires us at times to engage people's broken story. And what we find is that what we say, where can we learn about how to engage someone's broken story? Well, that's good news because the first passage recorded in all of scripture tells us something very important about God. The first verb Ever recorded. If you want to know what somebody's like, pay attention to the verbs, not the nouns. Like if somebody says, God is love. Okay, but so what? Until we have a working definition and framework of what does love do, right? Well, God is mercy. Yeah, all right, but so what? Until we have a working definition of verbs that says, this is what mercy looks like lived out, right? And the the first verb that ever is used in the whole of scripture to describe what God is, is that God is a creator, and so I want to talk about how as a well-based ministry, we are called to function as creators. And let's talk and let's put some language around what that means. This is what this is Genesis 1 verse 1. In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And then something really surprising comes out. And the earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep. In other words, God was engaging in something and it wasn't going well. Like you would think it would say, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And because he was God, it all started out perfect and stayed perfect. No, 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 no. What you find in this story is that God is engaging in the act of creating. And what he found was a mess, formless and void. That's the English, the Hebrew is even better. The Hebrew says, and the earth was tohu va bohu." I love that. It literally, and the earth was crazy. And that craziness invaded your house. In other words, what you find in Genesis 1, is that God as the creator is not threatened by darkness, disorder, and disrepair. He's not repulsed by it. He doesn't sit above it and judge it. He doesn't criticize it, nor does he banish it. He engages the broken story with the goal of making a better story. And and, and that's the problem with sin management. Sin management knows every little minutia of potential disorder points it out and says, why aren't you fixing it? What's, What's going on there? Like like church, church people get concerned with things like whether people are going to MA15 movies and 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 is somebody smoking in the parking lot over there without considering, wait a minute, where is their story being engaged in order to make a better story? What, what we find is that in Genesis 1, that God is not threatened by darkness, disorder, disrepair, nor does he judge it, nor does he criticize it, nor does he banish it. But he says, I can't wait to get into the middle of that to make a better story. See, I was told when I was a kid that God was too holy to be in the presence of sin. And that is just empirically and fundamentally not true. It seems like all God does is engage sin in order to make a better story. God is in me. God's in you. God's holding the whole world together, right? In in other words, God never looks at this mess and goes, you know what? That is fundamentally too messy for me to get my thumbprint on that. I'm going to avoid that. I'm going to judge it. I'm going to criticize it. I'm going to banish it. No, that's not what he does. He engages it in order to make a better story. In other words, if you don't hear anything else I say for this one, hear, hear this, okay? That as a well-based ministry, we have to be intentional about being willing to engage people exactly where they are with no judgment, no criticizing, and no banishing, not for any of those reasons, but to engage it in order to participate, facilitate, and celebrate that person's next yes in order to make a better narrative out of their life. Let's put some language around this. As influencers, we are called to be creators. Now, what does that mean? Creators don't avoid disorder. They engage disorder with order. Creators don't avoid chaos. They engage chaos with creation. Creators understand that everything belongs. So they don't banish the disorder. They reorder it to make a better story. Every part of that story belongs. But can we reorder it in order to make a better story? Here's what we learn in this, is that God seems to always meet people where they think he is and then moves them from there. He doesn't start with the complete picture. We couldn't handle it. So he meets us where we think he is and then he moves us forward. That's true of my life. It's true of your life. It's true of the scriptures. Like there's this guy named Abraham. And Abraham lived in a world where they thought they had to kill kids to please God. And that is way out there, man. Like You know, the world's so much better today. We're worried about whether someone's smoking or not. Now this person's killing kids, right? And God says, oh, you think you need to kill kids? I'll meet you right there. That's where I'm gonna be. Hey, if that's where you are, that's where I'm gonna gonna be. I'm not gonna judge that, criticize it or banish it. I'm gonna engage it right there in order to make a better story. So God engages Abraham right where Abraham thought he was. And he says, hey, Abraham, I've got a good idea. Instead of killing kids, let's kill animals. Now that is a better story. In other words, he engaged Abraham right where Abraham thought he was and then he moved it to something better. Same thing happens with Moses. Moses grew up in Pharaoh's house and he was taught his whole life that God was the sun, and the sun is made of fire. So Moses thinks God is a fire. And if you think through the story, how does God meet Moses? He meets him in the wilderness as a as a fire. Yeah, like but a different kind of fire. A fire that's not even burning up the most flammable thing in the desert. It's, it's like, a, you were taught your whole life, Moses, that God's a fire, but if you tick him off, he consumes you. But this fire isn't even harming the most flammable thing in the desert. As the great T.S. Eliot wrote, we only sustain, only suspire, consume by either fire or fire, that you will live your whole life terrified of the consuming fire of the sun, God, Ra, or by faith, you will embrace the refining fire of a loving Yahweh, who, although he will perfect you, he will never harm you for the bush was not consumed. Now that is articulate. <laughs> in, in other words... In other words, God met Moses right where he is, but he didn't leave him with the idea of a consuming fire. He changed it to refining fire. Years later, there's a guy named Caesar comes along and Caesar says, I'm not just a man, I'm God in flesh. And you know what? God in heaven didn't didn't go, oh no, oh my, there's a guy claiming to be God, I can't handle that. No, no, he doesn't. He's like, oh, the world believes God can be a man? I'm in, I'm in. This is the perfect time to become a man. Finally, the world believes God can be in a man. What a great time to introduce incarnation. But I'm going to flip it upside down. If God was actually a man, he wouldn't be raping, oppressing, and pillaging 99% of the world to enrich the 1%. He would be lifting the lowly to the level of the elite. He'd be leveling the playing field. He would just say things like, no such thing as male, female, Jew, Greek, slave, free. This would be a fundamentally better world, that God meets us right where we are, but he doesn't leave us there. He makes a better story, not by judging, not by criticizing, and not by banishing, but by re- reordering the parts of our story in order to make a better story and as a christ-centered community who are supposed to show the world what god is like we must be willing to do that for people who come who who that god brings into our into our into our influence the the, the question again is are we going to build wells or fences are we going to be direction focused or distance focused are are we going to be focused on sending more loving more sending less are we, are we going to be focused on, on nothing needs to be hidden or, or everything we got to get in there and fix it? Are we going to be focused on, are you worthy? Or are we going to focus on anything better? Like, are you thirsty? Do you want it? Are you teachable? Are you humble? Are you responsible? Are you passionate about the infinite possibilities that, that, that come in? Now, the question is, is how did God engage the stories? Because if, if we're called to engage people's stories the way God engages the story, well, the first thing we have to see is that God did not banish it, judge it, or criticize it. He engaged it to make a better story. This is why nothing is more nauseating than Christians sitting behind faceless computers complaining about darkness in the world. Get out and do something about it. Posting it on Facebook's doing nothing. Get out and do something about it. Use your energy to engage the story in order to make a better narrative. Now, the question is, is once we get to that, how did God engage the darkness? And I see three things here at least. One, he engaged it with intentional vision. God sees the solution as systemic in executing the vision. In other words, our yes must be clear. For New Hope to be the kind of church we're meant to be, the the yes that New Hope is must be clear. And we can't get bogged down in distractions like, was it right or wrong? No, what what are you talking about? No, no, no. There's a lot of things that aren't wrong, but they're not wise, right? Christianity lives with a higher, more profound plane than is this right or wrong? It lives with, is this wise? Is this useful? Does this bring life? And our yes must be clear. And our yes is we will be a well-based place, which means we are focused far more on loving more and far less on sin management. That's what it means. It means, it means because we've said yes to that, we must say no to the distractions of sin management. We must say no to the distractions of the pressure to fix everything. We must say no to the temptation to define people as worthy or unworthy, but rather thirsty or unthirsty. That is the whole, life. but the yes must be clear. Our yes must be the driving force of all of our nos. See, mature people struggle with this. When is my no selfish and when is my no mature? And here's one way to know that. A mature no always is attached to an intentional yes. So if you think, why did I say no to that? Well, it's because I said yes to something else. Then that is a mature no. Now, a no that is not attached to a yes could be a selfish no. Because one yes requires a hundred no responses. It doesn't, a no response is not powerful enough to make life change unless it's attached to a yes. Like to be a yes person on forgiveness means you must say no. To grudges. But just being a no person on grudges with no why of the yes on forgiveness, that doesn't help us. That we have to have intention if we're going to win this thing. We have, to, we have to have intention if we're going to move forward with this. In, in other words, you don't have to intend to fail. You just have to have no intention and failure will be a part of things, right? right? Like You don't have to intend to be unfit. You just have to have no fitness plan and unfit will overtake you, right? You don't have to intend to be broke. You just have to have no financial plan and brokenness will overtake you. What what, what we find out with God when he engages the disorder is his yes is so clear. Yes to light, yes to order, yes to this, yes to life, yes to life, yes to increase. And when we say yes, that means that there are certain no responses attached to that yes. So here's my question. Are we clear in what we want this thing to look like? And more importantly, is there alignment between the questions we ask and the stated values? Like it's one thing to say we're a well-based place. We're gonna focus less on, on sin management and more on love development. We're gonna focus less on fixing everything and more on creating a culture where nothing has to be hidden. And we are going to trust God to be at work. And so we can facilitate and celebrate every person's next yes. It's one thing to say that. It's a whole nother thing to make sure that the questions we ask in public particularly actually uphold the value. Because here's what the studies show. When the questions we ask and the statements we make say the same thing, Trust goes up, anxiety goes down, confidence increases. So, so I'll, I'll give you an example, right? So let's say, let's say you have a third grader and let's say he's an A type personality, like the, the type that would stress over a 98 instead of a 100, right? And he's got an exam and you look in on him, he's all sweating, he's stressed, you know? And so you're, you're a good mom, you're, you, know, you, you look in and you want to, or dad, you comfort him, you say, hey, buddy, don't stress about the exam. All I want you to do is do your best. Well, that's a statement. So the next day you pick him up from school and gets in the car and you go, did you do your best? Then the question you ask and the statement you make say the same thing. Trust goes up, anxiety goes down, confidence increases. But if he gets in the car and you go, what grade did you make? Well, that's a whole nother thing. Did you do your best matches with the statement what grade did you make? The question presents a different value than the statement made. And now, now you got anxiety. So if we're gonna engage people's stories, we got to make sure that the questions we ask and the stories we tell say the same thing because an intentional vision is required. Second is intentional words. Like, is there alignment between our vision and the words we allow to be spoken? The issue is almost never right or wrong, rather what is wise and useful Here's my question. As we've engaged our stories and other stories, facilitating and celebrating everybody's next yes, cooperating with the spirit of God instead of manipulating them, have Have we let things dominate the words that come out of our mouth in a way that goes against that? What you see in Genesis one is that God doesn't avoid disorder, darkness or chaos. He engages those things to make a better story. And he does so with intentional vision he does so with intentional words, by meeting people exactly where they think he is and then moving them forward with intentional yeses and intentional words. Let's say it the third way. You also see intentional rest. That there was a 6 and one rhythm built into creating. What you find in Genesis 1 is that God knew when to engage and when to disengage. And that is inspiring and it should inspire us. That, that actually an important lesson of engaging people's story in order to make a better narrative is to know when enough's enough is to know when enough is engagement, it needs, needs a bit of rest. What you find in this story is that God knows when to be on and when to be off, when to give, when to receive. That to, just, to be, just to be a viable part of any part of creation, we have to master the art of giving and receiving, whether that's breathing, eating, whatever the case may be. It's sort of like this. If, if our life is like a song, there's a way to play a song with the right notes and the right key, with the right singers and the right instruments. But if the drummer's off, it butchers the song. If the rhythm is off in the song, it butchers the song. And what? And we've all seen that in church, and we've been around church long enough to know. To see it with the the musicians are on one thing, and the drummer's just like a sixteenth of a beat off, and there's this really awkward sort of, and, and there's there's nothing to do other than stop and start the song over. We we also see this with Jesus. Jesus engaged people's stories right where they are. Right? He he. There's this one time in Mark where it says he spent all night casting demons out of people. How empowering. And it says that he knew that the next day the crowd would be bigger. So before the sun came up, he went to a solitary place to disengage, right? And then the sun comes up and the crowd's huge. And Peter goes and finds him because he knows where his spot is. And he he like rebukes Jesus. He's like, Jesus, what are you doing, man? Don't you know everybody's waiting on you? And Jesus says, really? Everybody's waiting on me? Then let us go somewhere else. In other words, Jesus knew when to engage and when to disengage because here's the truth. Your life's like a song. And too much engagement in the song creates white noise and confusion. But also too little engagement with the song creates depression. It creates disengagement. Music is made up of notes and rests. And in our life, if there's too much notes, too many of them, it's like, oh, it's hard to listen to. But also if there's too much rest in the music, that is equally hard to listen to. And here's what's happened in the COVID season, right? covid exposed an Australian value for promising something it couldn't deliver. Let me tell you what I mean by that. If you fly across the sea on Qantas, in the Qantas magazine, there's a wealth management ad about living the Australian dream. And in that ad, there are two Australians in their 60s with a camper. And the idea is, is that the idea is to never have to go to work ever, ever, ever again, and just drive around Australia and look at stuff. Okay. What? Anyway, The Australian value of uh, probably the number one question I get asked is, mate, mate, when are you going to take holidays, mate? The idea is, is that there's this value. if, if, If I just had enough money to do nothing and just chill. Well, here's what happened with COVID, right? COVID forced most people to sit around and do nothing and just chill. And that thing did not deliver what it promised. People hated it. Why? Because too little engagement in the song creates depression. Too much engagement creates white noise. And here's the thing. Sometimes I would preach something like this and go, we might need to have some rest here. Not right now, because COVID has put us in a season where there's been quite frankly, a little bit too much rest. And we need to get up, put our head up, our shoulders back and engage people's story and say our next yes and facilitate that next moment. Why? Because we are called to be the facilitators and celebrators of people's next yes that God brings into our world because we are gonna be a well-based place and not a fence-based place. So my brothers and sisters, here's my questions for us. Are we gonna build deeper wells or higher fences? Are we willing to engage people's stories instead of sitting above it judging? Are we gonna engage in sin management, which lets us sit above people and go, well, you did this or right? Or are we gonna step back and say, no, 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 no. We are gonna jump in headlong right into the disorder, the chaos and the disrepair, because we want to honor that person's thirst and help facilitate and celebrate that person's next yes? Are we willing to be the creator that God showed us we could be with intentional words, intentional vision, and intentional rhythm in what we're doing? May we engage the song again because the engagement of the song is critical to us saying, facilitating, and celebrating every person's next yes. Thank you so much for being a part of your morning. I hope Jesus got bigger for you today. Grace and peace, everybody. God bless.